people in this industry, you've always got to keep moving forward. That is the reality of the world that we live in. Every company at some point is going to experience a breach. Welcome, everybody. This is Tuesday Morning Grind, episode number 60. And when most people think about cybersecurity, especially you hear terms like chief scientist, threat research, and just cybersecurity in general, you, you think about the really technical stuff. And I think that's the bias of most of us cybersecurity professionals. But at the leadership level, one of the themes that always comes up is the idea of making having business acumen, understanding geopolitics, influence, de-escalation, managing people. And our guest today is an expert on the technical side, but also an expert on the human part of cybersecurity. So today we have Raj Shamani with us. Raj is the chief scientist at Trellix, spent about 12 years as the chief scientist at McAfee, is the chief innovation officer at Cloud Security Alliance, co-author of a couple books, and really an expert on all things cybersecurity and influencing people and, and management. So thanks so much, Raj, for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. You definitely have one of the more interesting backgrounds in cybersecurity. So maybe a good way to start it is like, talk about your career. How did you get into the space and, and what's it been like over the last few years for you? So I, I started at the help desk. I think most people in tech or certainly of my generation kind of began on, on a help desk. And, uh, you know, I remembered I did a master's in business information technology, which was actually quite fortuitous because initially, well, there wasn't really a career in cybersecurity when I began. And yeah, I did my master's and I was interested in security. I'd read a book um, by Cliff Stoll called The Cuckoo's Egg. And I was like, well, this is great. This is something I'd love to be able to do with these investigations. And, uh, and from the help desk, I kind of found this opportunity to be a security consultant for a local company. But you know, that was like decades ago. And, you know, really since then, I've, I've, I've focused on cybersecurity because actually I was interested in it. It's something that I, that, that inspired me, and I, I guess kind of growing up, films like uh, was it like Hackers, and um, you know, like so. So I, I'd been influenced by the media, I'd been influenced by books, but I didn't really think that there was an industry here. And you know, but slowly but surely, I kind of begun to really kind of hone my skills in this particular space. And um, and and you know, a lot of what I've done has all been kind of self-taught as well. So yeah, I think it was a uh, an industry that I wanted to get into, and um, I kind of started it as the industry kind of began to form yeah so i mean for me when you hear things like chief scientist at mcafee chief innovation officer cloud security lines like that inspires these visions of like the nasa rocket engineer of information security but but your background is like very much like a steady progression over time self-taught so do you think you, how, how did you land in those spots do you just have like some natural ability to do research or, or what do you think it is about you that allowed you to kind of have the kind of success you have? All I ever wanted to do, like honestly, was become a CISO. Like that, like when I was, because I remember I finished my, my formal education at 24. I did my master's and I was, you know, got into this industry. I, I joined, I, I did my CISSP and I did all of my certs. And I think I did 27, 27 or 30 certs. I can't remember. It was a lot anyway. And, and all I ever wanted to do was become a CISO. And, you know, by 34, I was made a CISO of one of the largest organizations on the planet. It's about 1.4 million employees. I mean, it was one of the most challenging jobs I've ever done. And I kind of went through and I was like, wow, 
this is not what I expected. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a challenging job. It was you know, late nights. It was you know, and I quickly realised that actually maybe this is not what I wanted to do. And certainly at the time, I was, I you know, I spent some time doing this role, and you know, strangely enough, an opportunity came up at at, a, at McAfee, and I I got to meet their CTO and. You know, there was an opportunity. So I actually took that opportunity knowing that actually I'm leaving, I guess, the end customer side. So yeah, when I came here, I I think the thing that I kind of always try and do and always try and push, which was I'll, I'll always try and learn something new, constantly try and do something new. And, you know, even, even when I was here at McAfee, I was at the time I was an EMEA CTO. So I... I, I started to do my own research in industrial control systems. I got to work with Eric Knapp. We wrote a book on applied cybersecurity in the smart grid. And, you know, that was, that was something that I was self-taught. I mean, I, you know, I didn't necessarily you know, do any formal education there. And then I got to work with the Cloud Security Alliance. We wrote one of the first books on, on cloud security with the CSA. Uh, I've written, gosh, how many blogs, papers, white papers, tweeted 10,000, you know, so like, I think you're always, like, I think in this industry, you've always got to keep moving forward. And like, I, I, you know, I could quote Rocky Balboa, but you remember when he says like to his son, you know, you've always got to keep moving forward. Well, in this industry, you've always got to keep moving forward. The, the challenge I think we're facing today is just the breadth or, and the breadth and depth of knowledge required to be a subject matter expert in cybersecurity now, I think is unreasonable for a single person to do so you know, what we've got today is i you know we've built a, a a vulnerability team we've built a malware team we've got an operational intelligence team you know we've got a team of reverses we've got threat analysts we've got geopolitics people that focus on geopolitics and my job is to try to kind of make sense of all of that and and understand what's happening at you know, I can't be the person now that can do all of it because it's just too broad and too deep now. Yep. You, you mentioned when we were talking before the show um, how technical skills, I'll use the word over, are overrated. Um, those are my words, not yours. And that human interaction, influence, de-escalation, you, you point out some of those as you move up the ladder and security become like, that's the name of the game. Those are the things that are really important. How did you learn those lessons and like how did they reveal themselves to you? Were there like situations you were put in that you realized those were new skill sets you needed? What, what was that like? Absolutely. I, I was petrified of public speaking. It, it was even when I was growing up, I remember, you know, I used to have to speak in front of the class and I used to I, I used to stay awake all night worrying about, oh, my gosh, I've got to speak to a group of people. I remember when I just got into the industry and I was with the ISSA. And um, Howard Schmidt had come over, and Howard was a great friend and uh, mentor to me. But, you know, I had to stand up and give a 20-second update on a mentoring program, and I, I was sweating buckets. And so for me, I kind of realized if I want to progress, I've got to learn the ability to be able to articulate and communicate, my, communicate to a larger audience. And so I went and spoke to a good friend of mine who ran the uh, InfoSec show, in Europe, and I said, look, can you get me a speaking gig? And he said, sure, you know, you're, you're well-known in the industry. So I got a speaking gig, and um, it was a one-hour presentation, but there was no fixed agenda. It was kind of a, 
there was like a running a kind of security type game show, and I was supposed to be the the, the, the presenter. And it was like if ever you're going to think of like trial by fire, that was it. And 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 I think you know all of this, like everything that I've learned and everything that you've done, is as a result of your experiences. And so my experiences in with having to do deconfliction or having to coordinate with law enforcement to find the investigating authority for a specific ransomware. Like all of that starts with, with your ability to communicate, your ability to be empathetic, your ability to understand what people need. And then, and then of course you start to read and learn about things around psychology, which is what's going to make me better as a person to interact with people. And you know, that, that, that's quite an eye opening experience as well. Yeah. I think one of the things I, I am beginning to notice and have noticed through my career is that success, a lot of success is like this careful balance of being very prepared, but also willing to go after the exposure. So you mentioned like some of the stuff you're doing in your career, like writing blogs and uh, taking jobs that you were nervous about or taking speaking events, uh, Twitter, 10,000 posts on Twitter. Like a lot of people have a lot of fear to do that stuff, but but you can overcome that fear with like being hyper prepared. And some people need to be like way more prepared than others to feel comfortable with it. But, but that seems to be a trend. Do you think, how do you think like just being, being willing to take your shots during your career has played a role? Do you think that like in hindsight, like there's lots of little things where you maybe did a talk or you did a blog post or you put a paper out and that kind of snowballed into like having a fabulous career, like just, just you, purely taking shots. I mean, if you're lucky, you're, you're, I'll, I'll use a baseball analogy, but you'll come up to the plate, swing for the fences and hit a home run. Yep. And, and I'm going to butcher it now, but uh, you know, I guess Babe Ruth was known for home runs. Was he? I, I don't know. Right. I'm going to show yeah. my limitation of the game, but <laughs> you know, there's only going to be a couple of Babe Ruth, but for the rest of us here that don't have the ability to be able to swing for the fences every single time, then it's going to have to be a, a, a job of perseverance. It's going to have to be a job of just being determined, like picking yourself up and just keep going. And, you know, that's like such a tired cliche, which is, you know, you just pick yourself up and keep moving forward. But that is the reality of the world that we live in. I mean, you know, you look at people, someone like Ed Sheeran, for example, in the music industry, like he, you know, he, he it took him time to make it. You look at, so all of these people that, that you kind of look at and you say, wow, okay, they've made it. And it was an overnight success. Well, there wasn't really an overnight success. It was, it was constantly being out there and pushing and, and pushing forward. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing, I think, which is when you take feedback or criticism, you know, how you can kind of take that on board without it completely getting you to kind of, I don't know, hide away. And, and there's been occasions like, you know, on social media or with blogs or with talks where you know, I, people have attacked me and said, oh, this is ridiculous. I mean, uh, I've had you know, death threats with things and you just, you know, you've got to find a way to kind of address and deal with that and just find a way to kind of persevere and not let them drag you down. Yep. Yeah. We at risk 360, we work with a lot of high growth tech companies. So, you know, we have a bunch of quote unquote unicorns in our portfolio, but one of the things you notice about those companies is they're like 10 or 15 years old. Like they're not that new. They've been around for a decade and people are just now starting to hear about them. And it just shows like, 
there are no overnight successes. And one of the jokes that I make to our team is, you know, success is easy. You just have to keep doing the right thing for a really long time and uh, stuff happens for you. And it seems like that's the same in your career. It's just like taking your shots, having some failures, keep moving forward. And, and then ultimately, if you keep grinding it out and have some grit, you become very successful. I, I do want to move into, I think when I hear words like chief scientist, especially like some of the companies you've worked for, I'm kind of like wondering what is your day to day in terms of, I imagine it could be all sorts of stuff. So from the outsider's perspective, it kind of connotates, I could imagine you debriefing major companies on potential vulnerabilities, maybe heads of state. There's probably geopolitics involved. There's probably some really cool research and and stuff that you have. Those are things that like I perceive to be happening, maybe inaccurately, but what's the day in the life for someone like yourself working with these kind of companies? Well, so, so there is no typical day in the life. And, and I think that's the, the great thing. And that's also the negative thing as well. Um, <laughs> you know, the last, I, I guess, 18 to 24 months has been probably the most challenging that I've ever experienced in my personal and professional life. Yeah, yeah, you know, two years ago, I was given an hour to live, for example. So it kind of begins with that to... You know, children falling sick with COVID, you know, family members, like literally people close to us not being here anymore. So the personal life has been some of the most challenging. And of course, all of that's done without, you know, any real respite because we're not traveling, we're not going away. And then you add on to that an an environment whereby we've had some of the most highest volume of attacks that we've ever seen or witnessed, you know, with, like, for example, with COVID, with ransomware with major espionage campaigns. And, and with that, you, you add on like, uh, you know, major vulnerabilities. Like we've had Log4j, we've had, you know, this new vulnerability 21907. So it's been some of the most challenging time that we've ever experienced. And of course, major, major attacks that we've had, for example, in the Ukraine. So, the, you know, if for me, the hardest thing has been around trying to maintain a degree of balance and 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 as I said to you, like you know, I've, I'm six and a half hours giving up smoking again. <laughs> and I suspect I'm going to fail miserably after this call is after this uh, recording is over because you you've got to find ways to deal and handle the stress. And for me, you know, I'll go for a run. I box. I still fight, for example. You know, I'll work out. Um, I still smoke. I know it's terrible. Um, you know, I'll play FIFA on the PlayStation, but. But whatever, whatever I can do to find a way to, to, to maintain that degree of balance and not bring it with me, I think for me is the challenge. So the typical day can be, like I think I said to one of my team, the last time I had a Christmas that was uninterrupted was 2014. And that's the reality of what we live in. It's, it's, it's as much reactive as it is proactive. So while we want to kind of do something, which is, long-term project and i can have have some of the team working on that for me it's like well you know i'll get a phone call saying hey we've had a critical bug or a critical vuln or we found something and we've got a brief we've got a brief of ceo or a head of state or something and that's kind of how it begins so yeah there there is no typical day in the life and i I, I kind of i'm kind of glad there isn't because i'm not one for routine really yeah for sure when you mentioned like we've seen I think the quote I heard you say is some of the highest volume of attacks we've ever seen over the last couple of years. And that's no secret. I think anybody in the space is seeing the uptick, hearing the news about that. In, in terms of trends, 
like I'm thinking macro, macro and geopolitical, like there's conflicts uh, that are not uh, don't involve, uh, I guess, physical warfare that might involve cyber warfare. There's criminal organizations that are profiting big on this stuff. Um, where do you think the trends, if you're looking out, you know, over the next five to 10 years, do you see the volume of attacks and, and kind of just cyber crime generally going up, leveling off? Like, what do you think the future holds for our space? Well, I remember in 2013, the FBI did an analysis of physical bank robberies and, and they made a statement which said, you know, the number of bank robberies, physical bank robberies are decreasing as the number of digital bank robberies are increasing. And that's the reality of the world that we live in, whether it's crime, whether it's espionage, whether it's uh, denial of service. I mean, it's moving digitally because it's more cost effective, it's less risky, and you have this construct of non-repudiation. So you can say, you know, you can attack another nation digitally and say, well, it wasn't us. Whereas if you, if you do a physical, you know, if you do a physical incursion, then of course, non-repudiation is going to be more of a challenge. And so we are, like, this is just the evolution of crime. This is just the evolution of espionage. This is just the evolution of warfare. And you just add cyber to it, but it's just the evolution of, and they're using digital means in order to be able to do that. So, I mean, it stands to reason from a digital perspective, these types of attempts and attacks will increase. The, the flip side of it is, there's going to be less likely of you being impacted from a physical crime, you know, like, for example, with, with, with regards to, um, uh, you know, like for example, a bank robbery, for example. So there's less likely for that to happen. So, uh, you know, this is just this is just the evolution of an industry. It just so happens that it is a criminal industry. Yep. Do you, who do you think, like, ever, people talk about attribution, which I know is, is difficult in any given instance, but from a uh, high-level perspective, do you think that this is coming, is it more driven by nation-states and geopolitics? Is it driven by criminal organizations, hacktivists? Is it like a subcontractor system where it's a little bit of everything? Like, where is this coming from? What's the root of all the all the cybercrime? Well, well, that's that's the problem. It is accessible to anybody. I mean, literally anybody. I, I remember, I'm not going to say who, but I had a conversation with somebody, and they were talking about them buying illicit drugs, and I just asked them, I said, "What? Where? How do you? Where do you?" How do you get to the other side? Just buy it online, and 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 that's that's you know I, I kind of I, I kind of oh, yeah that makes sense yeah of course you can buy it online, and that's the reality. It is and, and this person I was talking to has very minimal technical skills, but that's the reality is is that we're dealing with a world and an environment in which you know a a fairly incompetent technical user can go online. And be part of a criminal syndicate spreading ransomware. Or they can buy illicit drugs or weapons and have them, to, you know, that's the reality of the world that we live in. And so I think the accessibility of this criminal marketplace is one of the main drivers. And, and your question was, well, who's doing? I mean, like technically, your next one, like that's the problem. It's so accessible. So literally anybody can do it. And of course, there's training. I remember there was um, there was one of the largest identity theft rings 
Operation Fish Fry. And when I was speaking to the investigating officer, they told me, well, actually, these, these, these fraudsters actually hired a criminal to come in and train them on how to do credit on, on these card frauds. And, and of course, that was a good example of, well, that's the challenge we face is that it's so accessible. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've heard, I've read some research papers on, uh, on like the nature of cybercrime. And I think one of the better examples I saw was it was described as swarms and that there's like not a, a fixed entity typically that you can tie everything back to. It's like your neighbor, a subcontractor, someone who calls themselves a hacktivist, but was a contract gun for hire for a project, or it's a bunch of folks contributing loosely, but no one actually knows who they are to do stuff. And occasionally you might have like a military unit that's a formal nation state, but attribution is hard because it is very unorganized and there's plausible, plausible deniability for all parties, which makes prosecution or very difficult. Do you think there's a solution? Are you like jazzed up about any new regulations, any new technology that's coming out that you think is going to like make a, a big dent in this problem? Or do you think we're pretty far off from that? I'm enthusiastic about my industry. I'm enthusiastic about people that I work with day in, day out, you know, whether they're at this company, whether they're outside of this company, where, you know, this industry is incredible. And I admit that there have been instances in which individuals in this industry have been, um, have shown less than the required or requisite integrity. But rather than focus on the negativity, like there are people here that give up their time and weekends to provide content, to provide um, intelligence to law enforcement, that, you know, provide mentoring, free training. Which is just, it's just such a giving community and it's such a giving industry that I, you know, like, like for example, you know, I co-founded No More Ransom, which was an initiative we did with Kaspersky, with the Dutch National High Tech Crime Unit, EC3 and AWS. And we started off giving away free decryptors to people that were impacted by ransomware. And today that's at 150 companies having prevented nearly a billion dollars in, in proceeds going to criminals. And we didn't make any money from that. I didn't make any money from that. I don't think anybody really financially benefited from this. AWS ended up giving the entire service and platform free of charge to us. So I guess in answer to the question, like what I'm like, come on. I mean, AWS is a commercial company and they gave us free hosting and they have done for like, what, nearly six years now. That's just remarkable. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you know, you look at people like, you know, like EC3, the European Cybercrime Center, they collaborated and worked with private sector when public-private partnerships weren't even discussed. I mean, you look at the likes of Kaspersky, they were willing to partner with, they were, they were partnering with McAfee to do an initiative. So there's so many good examples and so many incredible people doing tremendous work for, without, without anything on the, on the back end, like not really asking for payment at the end of it. So, I think for me that that's just, and, and I don't know many other industries like that. Like I don't know many other industries that are just so, that are so forthcoming with their time, their, their resources, their talent. And um, I think we're just incredible as, a, as an industry. 100% agree. You mentioned um, some instances like where you're dealing with incident response and uh, 
I think most of us are fortunate enough where we're not sitting on the other side of the table helping someone uh, when they're having such a disaster happen. But you hear about it. You hear about the aftermath in forms of press releases or whatnot. But but you've had the opportunity to help a lot of people uh, directly or during an incident. What's that like? Like what's going on in the executives' heads? What's the room like? How are you managing that? Really tense. Very tense. The hard thing is, I mean, in in many cases, the people that you're working with are fighting for their lives. And I say lives, but for fighting for their careers. You know, they are concerned that this is going to reflect. So there is always this desire to find somebody to blame. um, And that becomes a challenge. And sometimes you have to deliver really bad news. And sometimes you'll, you'll tell them on what needs to be done and they won't do it and they'll get compromised again. And that's happened a few times. And sometimes you'll ask them to do things that just is, that goes against their general beliefs. I mean, I remember once I had to ask an organization and I said, look, can you, you know, we know that there is a nation state in your environment. We know that they've been here for at least six years and we roughly know where they are, but for the next four weeks, we need you to let them carry on with unfettered access to your network. That was an interesting conversation. And of course, the, the reason we needed to do that, because they were there so long that we needed to identify all of the, all of the persistence mechanisms inside the environment. If we close maybe three back doors and we leave one open, then, and they know that we know, then they could come in and completely torch the environment. So we, we were like, look, we're concerned that if you if you leave them inside your network and they want to cover their tracks, they'll just do something really disruptive. So we've got to watch them. And yeah, that was a hard call. That was a hard call. That was a very difficult difficult discussion with the CEOs involved. And then of course it went to you know, it went to an investigative team from the head of state, and you know, that became really political with a capital P. But this is I, th- I think the thing that I've learned in all of these instances and I, I kind of said this in the past, which is we can have the best technical capabilities, the best technical teams around, but ultimately what we need to establish is we need to give the organization impacted the confidence that we know what we're doing. And we need to help help them navigate through this. And so I kind of, I'm a bit of a bull in a china shop, which is, okay, this is what we need to do, pop, 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 pop. This is how we're going to do it. Da, 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 da. And this is when we can. And so I kind of become really meticulous about things. Um, every single task, every single process, every single action. And then just walk them through it constantly. Repeat, 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 repeat. And I think for me that that's always kind of. Because you know, I've danced this dance many times. Yep. How much of it is. I, I, like you said, you, you started off and you said like folks are as tense, people are emotional, jobs are on the line. There's executives, there's staff that are probably worried about their jobs. There's this desire to blame internal to the company and also external to the company. There's people who just want to blame the company. H- how are you managing emotions in, in those situations? Like, is that how? What are you doing to to manage expectations, de-escalate? keep people on task, what does that look like for you? So over-communicate, I think, is critical. And I, I tend to not... 
Well, I mean, obviously you use you use written communications, but I always tend to over communicate every single time. And if that means we get on a phone call every three hours, every six hours, every twelve hours, every twenty four, you know, whatever it takes to make sure that everybody is on the same path. And I think that's always going to be that to me is imperative. And, and again, it kind of comes back down to your ability to be able to influence. And so, like. So the psychologist Caldini talks about subconscious levers used to influence. Well, you know, I I look to leverage multiple levers to demonstrate my understanding of the fact that I know what's happening. So you use authority, you use consistency of message, you use liking. You know, so all of that you've got to kind of reinforce in everything that you do. I mean, it, and I mean, every single issue that we've dealt with has been resolved. But not every single time it's been resolved and the remediation steps that we've recommended have been implemented. And there's been occasions where we've you know, recommended that and, of course, they get popped again. And, 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 and again, you know, you just don't reserve, you, you, you reserve judgment. You don't turn around and say, well, I bloody told you that you shouldn't have done that. Why did you do that? You know, you just turn around and say, okay, matter of fact, this is what it is. Let's just deal with it. Yep. I think one of the fears when it comes to breach, at least some of the ones I've been involved in, is um, a, a ton of fear about reputation, how how third parties are going to respond to this, even investors or stockholders, how they're, they're going to feel about this. Yeah. So there's this general fear to be transparent about what happened, why it happened, what the re- resolution was. In certain cases, I've even had executives who... You know, first their first instinct was like to tell no one, even yeah. the people impacted by the breach potentially. Um, I, I know every case is different, but but generally, do you think that there is a benefit from more transparency, or do you think that companies should be keeping this stuff closer to the vest? I, I do believe at some point every secret comes out. At some point it will be out. And you know, and, and, and I've often said to I've often said to executives, I've said, look, every company at some point is going to experience a breach. You're going to be judged not on the fact that you were breached, but how you handled that breach, and how you communicated, and and how you how you managed and handled the impacted parties. Because, like, ultimately, you can say you were impacted, but you weren't. I mean, you know, if your customer data gets gets out your customers are going to be targeted with fraud. If, if, you're, you know, if your stock price plummets, it's your shareholders that are going to struggle. I mean, for us, we would end up getting a new... You know what I mean? So, so I've often said to organizations, look, it, 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 you'll be judged on how, you're, on how you handle the incident. And if you're open and transparent about it, you're going to be impacted, right? Just accept the fact it's going to impact you. But there will be those customers that will be appreciative of the fact that you were so open and transparent about things. And, and, and I think that, that's, and, and I think, I, I think the same message applies in real life. Uh, I, you know, I, I really can't do, you know, I don't do politics very well. I'm very blunt and very forthright and very transparent. And I'll tell you, you know, you ask me a question, I'll answer the question. And, and I think that to me is, is the way that we need to conduct business, especially in times of crisis. One of the frustrations I have when it comes to some of these breaches is when you think about the company and the people impacted is like trying to think through how I should feel about a company having an incident. On the one hand, you know, they're a victim of a crime. 
So, so you could view it through that perspective with empathy and, and sympathy. Like it's sad that this company is going through this, they're a victim of crime. I think the other way to view that is, was this company grossly negligent? Uh, thus, they should be held accountable for being a victim of this crime. And the truth probably depends on the specific case and, and many variables. But generally, how, how do you think most of that most people should feel about these? So we, should we be treating companies as a victim of a crime or, or is there a healthy dose of accountability needed for most of these companies? Yeah, so that, that noise is you opening a can of worms here because for me, it's too binary whereby company gets breached, they suck and let's all leave them and, and shout about it on Twitter. Like that, that's not helpful. But likewise, company gets breached. Well, don't worry, you're a victim of crime. Shit happens. Or it was a nation state. It was sophisticated. Bad, you couldn't have done anything. But look, let, let, let's not. Like the, the truth is, and I, and I think it's enshrined into data protection regulation, which is an organization has to have the appropriate organizational technical measures. In other words, was like, like it's, it's, did they do their due diligence? So for example, Mm-hmm. I, I've got to be careful how I say this, but there was one, there was one case that somebody got compromised, and they're like, "Well, it's your fault." I was like, well, "Okay, was it our fault?" Um, no, well, we did tell you about it. We did alert it. No, no, it's your fault. And um, I remember we actually went to the RDP shops and we had a look, and we found their credentials being sold, and their password was like like one, two, three, four, five, or something. And I kind of went back and said, "Look." You were compromised because somebody bought credentials on an online shop. And you were compromised because your, your password was really poor. And that was on you. I mean, look, if you if you wanna if you if you wanna be open or not, and, and of course, you know, yes, people are gonna have like like uh, like initial entry points that are that are open, but then you kind of add to it and say, Well, you know, okay, if an organize, if an organization does get compromised. Do they have the right monitoring in place? Do they have corrective action? You know, so the question I think we've got to start to answer is, was the appropriate due diligence in place? Did the organization take the appropriate measures in place to protect data about you, me, my family? And I think we don't do that enough because it's hard, right? We never mm-hmm. get the answer straight away. But if we start to ask those questions and say, well, okay, they got compromised, but it was a zero day that nobody had ever heard of. Like Sunburst is a great example. You know, no one's going to sit down and review the source code for an update from a security product. That's just not reasonable for most organizations. So like, I think there are those cases where you've just got to go, yeah, that, 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 yeah, that was good. Like, that was, it wasn't reasonable to be able to put met, you know, mitigated controls in place. Whereas there are those where you just turn around and say, well, yeah, you, you really shouldn't have had a password of password on your on you know on on an open RDP system into your di- directly into your IT network. Like that's just that's on you. Well, the problem is people aren't very good with nuance, <laughs> and I think when you get into any technical subject like this, it just requires nuance. You got to think through those kind of questions and, and answer them, and and it's not sexy or popular to do that. People want a headline, so it's easy to just play the blame game and oversimplify everything. Well, it needs time, though, as well, right? I mean, you know, yes, somebody's been compromised. Let's say they've had a website defacement. Oh, yeah, okay, we know about that. But but how did it happen? Well, we've got to do an investigation. Well, you know what? I haven't got three, four weeks to wait for that investigation. 
we'll just flame you on, we'll flame you on, we'll flame you on social media now. You know, and I think that we, we just don't have the time or patience to be able to really understand and reflect on what actually occurred. And I think that that's doing us all a disservice because then subsequently we can't learn from it. Do you, do you keep track of, um, like the state of geopolitics and, and cyber war? Cause I, I hear thing like you hear about the popular stuff, like, you know, Russia, China, th- those kind of things. But I also, uh, it, there is some cyber war is an interesting phenomena because of the fact that people can do things with plausible deniability. So it's kind of like uh, a, dip, a way to do things and, and still maintain diplomacy. But w- I guess if you keep up with it, do you have thoughts on like what the future of cyber war is going to look like? Is that going to be a more popular thing? What's the trend there? I'm not a politician. I'm a technical person. But that being said, we do provide or certainly I have and continue to provide technical commentary on malicious campaigns over multiple channels that we that 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 i suspect with degrees of confidence that we suspect to being operated by by nation states what i won't do is i won't you know do a thread on twitter about it and say look you know there's a troop build up here there because that that's not that's not me right i'm not you know i didn't I didn't study in this area. This is not my background. But what I can comment on is say, look, like, like a great example was we did some work um, with uh, Safeguard Cyber, great company, by the way, a- around misinformation campaigns being conducted on the back of the European parliamentary elections. And then we provide that information to the, to the European Commission and said, look, this is what's going on. And so, and this is who we believe to be behind it, and this is why, and this is our degrees of confidence, and so forth. And so, absolutely, I think you you've got to you you've got. I'm not the person that's going to sit down and write a whole thesis about like like foreign government policies and why they're doing things. But what I can do is say, this is what we are seeing. These are the campaigns that we are seeing, and with a high degree of or moderate degree of confidence, this is the threat groups that we believe to be behind this. And then, of course, we would then work with policymakers and stakeholders so they can provide the narrative as to the context as to why. Um, and I think that's important, right? You know, I'm, I kind of know what we're good at and I know what we're not specialists in and we kind of focus on what we're really good at. Last thing on trends, get your perspective on this. So I see you hear um, buzzwords, so there's kind of the crypto space that's doing this emerging that's here. You have uh, you hear things like uh, zero trust, which is, you know, cluttering my twi- my LinkedIn feed at the moment. Um, you hear other stuff like uh, quantum computing uh, that's emerging and there's theories about what that could that be done there. It, of these emerging kind of trends and technologies, are there any that you think we should keep our eyes on or all or all of them? Is there anything that especially catches your eye? Well, we're technologists, so we need to be keep an open mind about all of it. But, you know, personally speaking, my own personal kind of areas of, of interest, I mean, I, I am deeply motivated to pursue augmented reality. 
the ability to be able to you know, build a security sock of the future using AR. Like I think Minority Report, but I, like for me, that's that's kind of cool. I kind of think about how we can train people in cybersecurity using AR would be interesting. Um, another area of interest that I'm really interested in is um, around the, the developing technology around neuroscience. So I, I was uh, I spoke at a conference with a neuroscientist, and um, yeah, I, that's an area that I want to kind of really drill down on, which is they're developing these non-invasive BCIs, these brain-computer interfaces. Well, we've talked about hacking devices. Well, is, you know, if these interfaces have the ability to be able to download thoughts and patterns, can we do things around consciousness? So, yeah, I, I've been watching too many sci-fi movies, but at what point are we able to interact with 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 you know, with these BCIs and stuff? So, I, I think for me. That's that's the interesting thing about being in tech is that there's so much wonderful research happening all of the time. Like I genuinely don't have the time to 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 kind of jump into everything that I wanted to do. But for me, the the, the two areas that I'm, I'm I'm reading and I'm learning and I'm kind of really focusing on is, is around AR and and around neuroscience and specifically the technology integration around neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, if you integrate that with something like Meta, like if you have AI. Uh, a human connected device in a metaverse like that takes security to a whole, whole nother domain that probably isn't in our too distant future. That's pretty incredible to think about. Well, it, and it kind is of scary, but kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but if we kind of think about what cybersecurity, like when I started in this industry, cybersecurity was about switching off modems on desks. And today we're talking about cars being hacked claims of airplanes being compromised, you know, that's in two decades. In two decades, we've gone from modems to airplanes. Two decades from now, like the stuff I'm talking to you about, which is, well, if, we, if, if the ability to be able to interface with the brain becomes a, 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 an actual reality within our lifetime, the security considerations can be frightening. And I think for me, like, not that I'm talking about building an AV platform for the brain, by the way, but it's just for me, it's absolutely fascinating being at the forefront of this of of technology, which is understanding and learning where we're going. So for me, I am, I am, um, yeah, I'm just I'm just, I guess, I'm intellectually constantly curious. Absolutely, Roger. You mentioned at the onset, uh, you're you're pretty heavy on social media. You do a lot of thought leadership, research papers, um, blogs, and stuff. If people want to kind of follow your work or, or get to know some of the things that you're doing, what, what's the best place for them to follow you? Uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, and um, yeah, you, you, you'll be able to find me. There's not many Raj Samanis on this world. I think I think I found a couple actually. Awesome. But there's only one that's I think doing doing <laughs> security and privacy. So look for Raj Shamani on Twitter or LinkedIn, and, and you can follow all the work. Raj, thanks so much for being here, man. This is a great conversation. It's, it's fun to have these future conversations around security. So thank you. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, thank you for watching Tuesday Morning Grind podcast. If you like content just like this from cybersecurity executives, thought leaders, hackers, then come on over to risk360.com. Check out our resource center where we have blog posts, white papers, videos, all for free that can teach you about cybersecurity. If you want to know more about cybersecurity certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, PCI, High Trust, and others, we have a ton of content on that. So whatever you're looking for, we have a lot of resources. Head on over to risk360.com, shoot us a note, 
and we look forward to keeping the conversation going. Thank you.